Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. This week on It Starts With Attraction. Self-honesty and self-deception are not typical parts of my verbiage throughout a regular day, but it is exactly what we deep dive into in this episode of It Starts With Attraction. I'm joined with Dr. Courtney Warren. She's a board-certified clinical psychologist and also teaches adjunct psychiatry and behavioral health at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. She's won some great prestigious awards in her career and done some really great things. She's even studied self-esteem and body image, which is something we kind of geek out on together at the beginning of our conversation, because that's a part of what I'm doing my PhD in and what my dissertation is on. So you'll hear us kind of deep dive into that for just about five minutes before we really get into the meat of what we talk about today, which is admitting to ourselves when we're trying to deceive ourselves and then being honest with ourselves about things that can be difficult to be honest with ourselves about. It's a fascinating conversation. Let's dive into today's episode. There's a process to falling in love, and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. I am extremely excited to be joined today with Dr. Courtney Warren. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to chat with you today. Well, I have to tell you a story. So yesterday, my my husband and I, <clears throat> we were in Chattanooga, which I live in Nashville. I, di- I didn't tell you that, but we were in, you know, for the Memorial Day weekend because that's when this is being recorded. And he sent me this article yesterday morning, and I can't even remember the name of it, and I don't have my my um, phone on me, but the article was like seven phrases that emotionally healthy people say. And so I open it, and I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, I love this. This is good. Like, why did my husband send this to me? <laughs> what is he trying to tell me? And I asked him, I said, why did you send this? He said, because those are things you say. And, you know, I thought, wow, this is actually something that that you do, you should probably be happy to know that you do emotionally healthy things. Anyway, I get to the bottom of the article and I realize it says written by Dr. Courtney Warren. And I said, I'm talking to her tomorrow. <laughs> like how in the world? And it was a CNN article. So it was a super crazy and funny experience to just say, yeah, this is a great article. And you get to the bottom and it's like, I'm having a conversation with her tomorrow. So there you go. That's that a was- magical. Not only is it a compliment to you from your spouse about how lovely you are Very in relationships, but so timely that here I am and we can talk about anything that you'd like. I know. Of it. I know. I love it. And actually, we're going to link to that article in the show notes because it was it was a really good article and some great just just tidbits of how to phrase things mm-hmm. and and get a an 
phrase them better for how you're wanting to say it, what you're wanting to, the actual goal you're hoping to get across. Um, maybe some of that will come up today, but we're really here to talk about several different things. So you have done a lot in the relationship space, in the self-deception space. Tell us a little bit more about how you got into psychology, what you earned your degree studying, and kind of what your psychological interests are now. Well, psychology is really the study of human nature. It's the study of who we are as humans, what motivates us, what separates us from animals, what leads to fulfillment, how to live a meaningful life. What's the purpose of life? These really big philosophical questions that when unpacked actually can dramatically help us to live the best version of a life that we need to, to not have regret at the end of it. And so I, I think probably as humans, most of us are inherently interested in psychology at some level because it's very selfish. It's very, it's very right. self promoting, right? You know, in the best possible way. And I was raised traveling a lot. Uh, my parents were both academics. My father is Scandinavian. And so we would go abroad a lot. And I was mm. fascinated by humans, how we're different, how we're similar. And particularly, I was interested in our eating behavior and body image. So one of my areas of expertise is eating pathology. And just looking at the world and seeing who cooked, how people ate, how they felt about their physical appearance, how that manifested in their relationships with others was fascinating to me. So I went into undergrad and then graduate school and got a degree in clinical psychology and went straight into a tenure track academic job and did a, a lot of research on multiculturalism, on eating, mm. on behavioral addiction. So how we can be addicted to a process like gambling or eating, some people will say, or sex or pornography mm. or online gaming. Um, and that really kind of makes the the large theme of the large majority of my research and my clinical work. Wow, that's really fascinating. What are some of the takeaways that you had from the eating and body image studies that you've done? What are some of the most fascinating things that you recall from that? I think probably the most interesting truth about eating behavior and eating disorders is that they are ideologically influenced by cultural context. So what do I mean by that? I mean that you literally don't find eating disorders the way that we diagnose them in our cultural context in mainstream American culture in other eras or other cultural groups hmm. or other countries. And there are very few mental illnesses that are diagnosable where you could say that actually this, this disorder would not manifest in this way outside of a cultural context. So in general, to become obsessive and fixated on your physical appearance and have a really unhealthy relationship with food, you have to have an excess of food and you have to have a very strong value placed on physical appearance as a determinant of personal value. And mm -hmm. so in our country and in the mainstream Western cultures, like the mainstream culture in the United States, 
we see particularly for women and for the female gender role, a very strong tie between what you look like and your value as a human being. And what you're supposed to look like ideally is very thin, is very young, is very white. And most of those ideals are incredibly culturally influenced. And so I think in terms of unpacking why that matters, really encouraging people to think critically about what they believe makes them valuable and what they may have unconsciously internalized by virtue of living in a cultural context that is hurting them. That Mm -hmm. this striving that most of us have in a Western cultural context to be 18 forever, to do anything you can to be perpetually young, to be thin, to be fit, to wear makeup, to have plastic surgery, all of these are really attempts at meeting a value-based physical ideal that at the end of the day isn't attainable and generally sets us up to strive for something that we're never going to get. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the middle of my PhD right now. So I'm in the middle of writing my dissertation. And part of what, so my dissertation is on goal attainment, Mm. but looking at self-esteem and body esteem and how it affects goal attainment and, Mm. and vice versa. So just looking at the overall correlation between it. And one of the parts when we look at self-esteem, you know, there's a global self-esteem, which is just overall feelings, your overall feeling of self-worth. And then there's the specific domains of self-esteem. And so um, you're probably familiar with this research, but Crocker, Jennifer Crocker did a lot in the early 2000s about the contingencies of self-worth and Mm -hmm. seven different areas in which people find their self-worth in and appearance being one of them. So Mm -hmm. it was appearance, competition, academic competency, virtue, God's love, um, and there's two other ones, family support. Mm -hmm. and, And I can't remember the last one. Either way, the appearance one and along with competition and I believe academic competency, when people had that as their highest contingency of self-worth, that was the one that was most important to them and where they found their mm-hmm. self-worth, they tended to also correlate with lower levels of overall subjective well-being mm-hmm. and and many other negative factors to, to their health, both physical and mental. Whereas if it was in something more stable, such mm-hmm. as virtue, which is your moral and ethics that you adhere and follow to, or God's love. So feeling like there's a support bigger than you, greater than you that, that supports and loves you unconditionally, they tended to have the most stable mm-hmm. feelings of self-esteem and subjective well-being over time. And so that's definitely something that I find personally fascinating as well, just looking at it from a different angle, but it tends to to, you know, come back to an unshakable truth under underneath it. A question for you, though, is what do you think it would take in society to shift that to where men and women mm-hmm. didn't put so much weight of their worth and esteem into appearance and for it to be a healthier solution overall? Time and continued effort. 
I think that a lot of cultural shifts actually have happened that are very positive. For example, I think we are seeing a wider representation of beauty ideals than we ever have in mainstream Mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. You see different skin colors, you see different ages, you see different body shapes and sizes. And historically, 30 or 40 years ago, you wouldn't have really seen any of that as Mm -hmm. a representation of the beauty ideal. So I think that there are lots of cultural efforts and lots of professionals as well, organizations that really are actively advocating for shifts in our cultural values around physical appearance and around value, how much physical appearance matters to our value from a cultural perspective. Um, that said, cultural change is incredibly difficult, right? Mm-hmm. We see this when we talk about racism or when we talk about ageism, when you talk about sexual orientation acceptance, transgender issues, any of these social issues where you're really trying to reframe and shift the communal value system and the communal um, perspective on behavior. So how to be non-discriminatory. That takes tremendous amounts of shift and effort and time and advocacy from every aspect of a community, from, you know, the educated who are trying to present information from a very data-based perspective to the lived experiences of people who say this really harms my mental well-being and the mental well-being of the people around me. And it's not fair or it isn't just or it isn't moral. So you know, on the flip side of it, especially when we talk about romantic relationships, every culture in history probably has had an ideal physical appearance. That Mm. there is an element of us as sexual beings, as relational beings, that does relate to someone based on what they look like. And in early infant research, you actually see biases towards quote-unquote highly attractive people from a really early age. Um, from yeah. three to six months old, you'll see infants spending more time looking at images of individuals who are deemed very attractive, which generally is about facial symmetry. Um, mm. But so there is probably some biological aspect of this as well, which which is an interesting process for us to all talk about. At the end of the day, I think one of our main goals is to empower people to feel safe and secure and sound in their own skin, no matter what they look like and no matter how society views them. And so in that sense, going back to kind of your tenets of self-esteem, I think that self-esteem is actually key to mental well-being across a spectrum of issues. And when we talk about self-honesty and personal growth, there is really an inverse relationship between self-deception and self-esteem such that Mm -hmm. the more self-esteem you have in whatever aspect of self-esteem that is, the more able you are to tolerate painful life realities. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, that actually makes you so much more resistant to having negative effects of adversity. And so one thing that I stress for anyone who ever walks into my office or anyone who's interested in developing their own psychological strength is find a grounded way of appreciating yourself, of valuing yourself exactly as you are 
in a non-judgmental way while actively trying to learn and grow in whatever ways you deem most important. Because mm-hmm. that over time is kind of the best that we can do as humans. And it will lead to the best mental health outcomes. It will lead to the best community-based outcomes. Um, there's this sort of saying in mental health circles, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah. The more you are grounded and secure in yourself, actually, the more likely you are to spread that to everyone you encounter. And the more all of us do that, the less likely we are to take it out in harmful ways on other people. Mm, That's good. Courtney, let's go back for a minute because a term that's newer to me and probably new to several people in the audience is that of self honesty, I believe that's what you said, and Mm -hmm. Mm self-deception. So can you define that? What is self-deception? What is self-honesty? And then we'll dive deeper into it. Yes. Oh my goodness. So self-deception is anytime you convince yourself that something's true when it isn't, Hmm. or you believe something false even when you have information to the contrary. So self-deception at its core is believing something that's a lie, convincing yourself of something that isn't true. And this idea goes back actually centuries really to the core philosophers, but then was really articulated in the psychological literature by Sigmund Freud, who was really the father of psychotherapy mm-hmm. in his ego defense mechanisms. And essentially self-deception is really important to us as humans because it keeps us from admitting, admitting things to ourselves that hurt. Hmm. And in that way, it's very protective. The more you deny the more you rationalize, the more you say, oh, no, no, I'm not like that. You're like that. Project. The more you can stay protected from having to admit something that would really be painful if you actually acknowledged the truth. So the opposite of that is self-honesty. And self-honesty is really this ability for any of us to tolerate reality radical honesty. It's the ability for you to say to yourself, ouch, I don't want to acknowledge that this is true. I don't want this to be true of myself or my partner or my family or our culture Mm -hmm. or our political situation, but it is. And it serves me better to admit the truth to myself because when I do, I now have the freedom to choose how I'm going to respond to it instead of staying mired in my excuses and in my deception, which in the short term makes me feel better, but in the long term keeps me stuck. Interesting. Okay. So it's not just, so it's, there's a, the self part made me think at first that it was mainly things about yourself, right? Mm. You're, you know, Mm. you're lying to yourself about a skill that you have that you Mm. don't or, or whatever it might be or justifying something wrong that you did because you feel like you have reasons to justify it. But you're saying that this is just whenever we lie to ourselves or try to protect ourselves from the truth for about us or about the situation around us, something that happened to us, the people in our lives, it could be any of those things. Yes. So the self part is that you're lying to yourself. Mm. You could certainly be lying to yourself about yourself. 
but you could also be lying to yourself about a painful reality that is outside of yourself. Other people, Mm -hmm. circumstances you've encountered, something at work, something in your family of origin, any of that is essentially a lie that you're telling yourself to protect yourself from pain. So how do you help people or how can people understand that they're lying to themselves about things if they have really buried it or they've Mm -hmm. really tried their best to convince themselves that that is, that the, the lie that they're, that the lie is truth, right? How do you, how can people unearth and unmask what the truth Mm is? It's such a journey. And I want to just very clearly state to anyone who might be listening to this, that we all lie to ourselves. Mm. Every single human on this planet lies to themselves and has lied to themselves about something. Mm. And actually, when you think about self-deception from a therapeutic perspective, it's really the crux of what we would call cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive therapy, where you have experts like Beck and Ellis who outlined that most of us want to believe that our thoughts are true because we're thinking Mm -hmm. them. And so clearly we're right. So we operate going through the world thinking, well, we must be right about everything. Mm. The truth is that our thoughts are highly flawed and highly illogical in some very characteristic ways. And Mm. so from a therapeutic perspective or a clinical perspective, one of the most important things for us to do with ourselves and with people we work with is to help them evaluate critically their thinking to ensure that it's helpful and accurate. Um, so let me give you an example. Yes, please and Particularly with relationships. So one of this book that I just wrote is on breakups. And one thing that we see oftentimes when people fall in love, that honeymoon phase for any of you who ever have been there, where you meet this one person out of a host of options Mm -hmm. and they capture your attention. And over time, you find yourself thinking about them and you're craving them and you want to be with them and you want to touch them. And it's almost like you become addicted to them. They are the center of your world because you feel euphoric when you're around them. It becomes this heightened, giddy rainbow in fantasy land, which feels really amazing. It's actually neurobiologically one of the most compelling natural highs that we can ever have as a human being. The problem or part of the problem of falling in love is that you are very likely to lie to yourself about who your mate is. Because you actually don't know very much about who they are as a human being. And so what we tend to do as humans is create in our own mind a fantasy version of who they are based on how they make us feel, based on our internal experience of being around them, based on who we want them to be. Thinking things like, I found my soulmate. This is the one. They're perfect. They're perfect for me. They complete me. This is all I need to be happy and healed in this life. And the reality is that none of those things are true. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that happens for people who fall in love and then break up is that now they're essentially going through a withdrawal process where they're 
object of their affection, the object who made them feel so euphoric is no longer there, but they still have all of these faulty beliefs about their now ex running through their minds that keeps them stuck on them. And so part of the journey of becoming aware of the self-deceptive tendencies in us in romantic relationships is bringing out all of those thought processes and beliefs that you create, that all of us create about our mate and unpacking them in a very deliberate, very critical thinking-based way to say, well, if you believe these things about your ex, how does that affect you? How does it affect the way you emotionally feel? How does it affect the way you want to act? How does it affect the way that you feel about yourself as a human being? And is this helpful or harmful? What Mm -hmm. evidence do you have that it's true or false? And the goal isn't to sort of make people universally positive. I think that that's a very common misconception about CBT in general. The Mm -hmm. goal is to make your thinking patterns as honest as possible so that when you encounter something that's negative and painful, now you have the opportunity to deal with that and grow from that and choose your response instead of staying in a deluded world that will keep you stuck and fixated on a former lover in ways that ultimately harm you tremendously. Mm, That's... I have a lot of questions, Courtney. So I'm thinking as well about this in the context of married individuals that are still married. Mm -hmm. So that's the road I kind of want to go down because that's several, I know that's several of my listeners as well. And I think this can be true. Actually, I know from personal experience that this can be true as well, because again, there's that same process of you're falling in love. It's, you know, it's the best thing ever. You're going to get married and marriage is going to be like this, like this fantasy, this honeymoon all the time, all of the things, right? Yes. And I've been very open with my audience that my first year of marriage was nothing like that. Mine wasn't very, either. <laughs> very hard. Yeah. Well, and so similar to what you're talking to, like I rem- I remember for me. So um, my husband and I got married, and the next month moved to South Korea. It was oh. so literally everything changed, right. and we didn't have any support system around. And I remember thinking, probably about three or six months into it, like this is not what I signed up for. Like, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. And did I make a mistake? And it was the hardest thing for me to actually just struggle with. Like even to say those words, even now to say those words is, is hard because it's like the self honesty thing, right? Like I don't want to admit that that's a thought that I'm even having, or especially back then, that that's a thought that I was even having because it's embarrassing. It's Mm -hmm. shameful Mm -hmm. for me um, Mm -hmm. because I remember when we were dating, I was so sure that this was the person and it was going to be perfect and and all of those things. And so I kind of went into a self-protective Mm-hmm. mode to where I just wouldn't talk about the struggles with anyone mm-hmm. because I don't want other people to know that we're struggling mm-hmm. because then it would break this facade that I had, or it would make me come to grips with the way things were. And I think where part of my struggle was then, and I, and I think even some of my listeners now is there's a, 
another reason that we don't like to share, which is I don't want someone to tell to tell me that I did make a mistake. I don't mm. want someone to speak into me and get me to make a decision to mm. to leave instead mm. of to do the healthy, like what healthy way can we work through this in order to address some of the self-deception or self-honesty, mm-hmm. but also at the same time, do what's best for the future of the relationship. So I would love to hear your thoughts about all of that and yeah. how you would work with someone who, may, who like me, if you knew me 12 mm-hmm. years ago when this was happening and you were who I was going to, like, mm-hmm. what would it look like for us to process that together? Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a beautiful example. And thank you for your vulnerability in sharing part of mm-hmm. your story because it's so common. I mean, my first reaction mm-hmm. is it's so common. It's a beautiful illustration of what probably the large majority of married couples experience at some point in their relationship where they're looking at their spouse or they're looking at their life and they're going, how did I get here? Yeah. Am I, is this, did I make a mistake? Is this Mm -hmm. the right choice for me? They're not who I thought they were. Maybe I'm not even who I thought I was, right? This, these moments of inflection where if you start to get really honest with yourself, it's incredibly scary. And you even articulated the protective nature of self-deception in your description. It's so hard to admit to yourself because it means a whole host of things to different people. It might mean you're, you're wrong. You're flawed. You're broken. Um, it's embarrassing. Your partner isn't who you thought they were. And so you picked the wrong person and the other person could still be out there somewhere because there are millions of options mm. there. And a lot of that will have to do with you and your upbringing and who you are and how you got into the relationship in the first place. Sure. But one thing I absolutely would want to say, if someone came into my office with your description is this, just because you're admitting a difficult reality to yourself does not mean you made a mistake. Mm. And I want everyone out there to understand that the best we can do as humans is to make choices with the information that we have at the time as honestly as possible. And as you go through life, when you get new information, sometimes you have to change your choices. And so even if you're in a marriage that ends, it doesn't inherently mean that your marriage was a mistake. It may mean that you learned something about yourself or your partner over the course of time that led you to make a different choice. And that is the journey of life. And it doesn't mean you're stupid and it doesn't mean you're flawed and it doesn't mean that it was a mistake. So First and foremost, I I think that's so important for people to hear because as humans, we're going to make mistakes constantly. Mm. The goal isn't to stop from making mistakes. The goal is to make the best choices as honestly as possible each moment of every day. And the more honest you can be with yourself in the moment, the better choices you're going to make. So yeah. Then when you think about um, sort of the long trajectory of self-honesty, I know you talk a lot about acceptance in in Mm -hmm. your work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, acceptance is such a critical part, accepting yourself and accepting your partner in a long-term 
healthy relationship. But acceptance requires honesty. Accepting, accepting your partner and accepting yourself and still choosing to be together means that the facade fantasy of what you thought a relationship was going to be, of who you thought your partner was going to be, of the most ideal aspects of yourself that you wanted to be are torn down to some degree in the interest of being vulnerable, brave, honest which includes admitting things that you don't want to be true. Like in this moment, I really don't like you. In this moment, I am not sure I made the right choice. In this moment, I am incredibly emotionally upset and I am not sure why. Hmm. Having that intimacy with another human coming back to the table and saying, I see your warts. I see these things I don't like about you and I still choose to be here, is the foundation for a meaningful romantic relationship. And it will only really develop after you've had enough of a reality check and enough of a radical slap in the face to actively still choose to be together in spite of the entire sort of breakdown of the fantasy. Um, And so I think that that's part of the journey. You know, oftentimes in romantic relationships, we talk about sort of three phases that you see in neurobiological research. So the first phase is lust, which is essentially just your sex drive when you go out into the world and you, you find potential mates and you're seeking potential mates that you, for whatever reason, find attractive. They're good looking. They are spiritually aligned. They're intellectually stimulating. They're whatever it is that you are attracted to. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you might find someone and you fall in love with them. And that falling in love, that romantic love, that honeymoon phase is highly deceptive, highly. But if you can get through the romantic love honeymoon phase long enough that you actually get to be vulnerable with another person, that you actually get to see really who they are and some of the things you don't like about them and you still actively choose each other, that's where a lot of that attachment really comes from and where you can feel bonded and safe and grounded in a in a connection with another human that is based in choice because mm-hmm. relationships are a choice. Every relationship we're in is actually a choice. And so continuing that connection and saying, I'm still making a choice to be with you is so profoundly meaningful that you can't get in lust or in a honeymoon romantic state. Yeah. Yeah. It leads to those deep, secure, I mean, it leads to deeper levels of the relationship and a feeling of security that is not there with lust or love. It's that I know this person's going to be there for me no matter what, which is honestly what, what we're, what we're made to have, right? That's why attachment theory is studied so much in kids because that's what kids are looking for from the time we're young. That's something that we need to feel that we're seen, soothed, and secure in the relationship that we have. So there's no question. Love is a need. And I think Mm -hmm. we, we often don't think of it that way. There are mental health theorists who have positioned it that way for centuries. And with emerging research on the biology of love and the neurobiology of love, when you're in love, 
it activates a very old survival-based part of your brain. And we mm. also know, as you said, from attachment research, that we actually need to attach to a secure figure that we care about, that cares about us to thrive and develop in healthy ways. And when you don't, or when you're not able to from early childhood, it is very likely to harm your romantic relationships as an adult, mm -hmm. because you will unconsciously play out your fears and insecurities with your now adult mate. Mm. What are some ways that you encourage people to work through some of those childhood issues with attachment that they may have had from their primary caregiver or a previous romantic relationship that maybe they are seeing come up in their current relationship? So what are some of the best ways to identify those and then work through them? Well, I will say that the entire middle section of my book is really about exploring your core beliefs from early childhood until now and trying to unpack how they're related to your romantic relationships today. So I think it's essential if you don't want to repeat or recreate the same dysfunctional patterns from relationship to relationship over time. I always encourage people to start by looking at some of the core themes they learned about themselves, other people, and the world around them from early childhood. So think about, picture your early childhood relationships with your parents and your family of origin, with your peers and your school environment, with your first dating partners, because those will give you a whole host of of triggering keys to where mm -hmm. you're going to struggle the most. And then also with your sociocultural environment. So you and I touched on a couple of times that we learn very faulty beliefs in this cultural context about love and what marriage means and what it's supposed to look like that are, that are highly flawed. And so start to ask yourself, what did I learn? What did I learn about my value? What did I learn about love? Did my parents' relationship look happy? Did, were they affectionate? Was it violent? Did I have any adverse experiences that made me wary of vulnerability, wary of connection, make me doubt my own core value as a human being? Anywhere you can find fear, insecurity, or adverse experiences that made you feel unsafe. Mm. Those areas are going to be the most ripe for you to bring out in your adult romantic relationships in ways that will ultimately hurt you and hurt them. So let me mm. give you an example. Um, I, I'll use myself. I have came come from a divorced household, which is a very common experience for a lot of mm -hmm. humans. My parents were not good together. It was not a happy divorce, and it was a mm -hmm. very volatile relationship both before and after. Yeah. And when I started dating in adolescence, which is a very common time for all of us to start exploring ourselves as romantic and sexual beings, I was very aware that I had an incredibly difficult time trusting people. Mm -hmm. I always had one foot out the door. I 
was never vulnerable. I didn't trust anyone. And I would have emotional reactions to people I was dating that rationally I knew didn't make any sense. So for example, uh, one of my most significant relationships in college, my boyfriend came to my apartment one night um, to give me a kiss. He was going out dancing with his friends. And I burst into tears, Mm -hmm. absolute mess. And he looked at me and he said, Court, what, what's wrong? Why, why are you crying? And the truth was that I couldn't tell him because I did not know. And so those moments, any moments that you as, as a person can say, oh, there's a disconnect here between the actual situation that I'm in and my emotional reaction. There's a disconnect between the situation I'm in currently and what I want to do or how I want to act or how much I'm willing to share or how vulnerable I'm willing to be. Pause. Because this is your greatest opportunity to put the current life situation on the side and ask yourself, what can I learn about me because of this reaction that I'm having in my present life that actually has almost nothing to do with my present life? It has to do with the fact that I, Courtney, learned from a very young age that love was dangerous, that I absolutely should never trust a romantic partner, and that if they were drinking, something bad was going to happen. Now, at the time, I didn't know that. I couldn't have articulated it to you because I wasn't aware of it. But over the years, as I started to pause in those moments and evaluate my own beliefs and my automatic thoughts and my emotions and started unpacking, where is this coming from? It became abundantly clear that my core beliefs about love and romance were that it was incredibly dangerous and I should never trust anyone. And until I worked through those, I was never going to have a successful romantic relationship as an adult because I brought those core beliefs everywhere I went. Yeah. I love that because it continues to highlight that that need to do some inner work, some self-awareness, mm-hmm. that self-honesty even mm-hmm. to really take that time and flush out where is this where deeper is this coming from within me? What in my past is triggering this? What else is leading to this this continued feeling or this continued thought the I believe you call it the core themes that core need beliefs. to be addressed. And yes. I I love, yeah, I love that. Uh, here, here's another question for you. So, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm even just thinking about a Q and A Q&A I did earlier today, and of course, there's the people who are like, love self awareness, like, give me more. What else can I do? I want to learn more about me. They're the kind of people who would listen to a podcast like this, and then there's the other kind of people who are a little more defensive, mm-hmm. maybe don't do as much inner work, mm-hmm. and you and I both, because of the profession we're in, man, wouldn't we love everyone to just dive in and want to want to unpack all of the stuff and, and mm-hmm. get down to it. Mm-hmm. But what about for those people who are more resistant? And mm-hmm. especially if if that is 
for the people listening, maybe they're married to someone who's more resistant to mm-hmm. think this way or to dive deeper and do their own self-work. What are some tips that you could give either to the reluctant person mm-hmm. or a friend or spouse of a reluctant person? Mm. Well, I'm going to start with the reluctant person. And the reason for that is that as much as I'd love to give you tips on how to work with your partners, which we can do, ultimately you have no control over them. And so I always think that the most effective techniques that we can use together, that I can express to people are going to be based on what you have control over and that's you. So if you're feeling reluctant, you know, the reality is that people don't like change. As humans, we, we're really resistant to change. And particularly when it's self-deceptive, we're really resistant because admitting it's going to hurt. So the reason that most people are willing to change and do the work if they're resistant is misery. It's that it hurts so much or there's some consequence to not changing that's so bad mm. that you actually can't afford to stay the same. And so if you are resistant or you're finding yourself, you know, you're listening to the self-deception and you're like, oh yeah, I think I do do that. And I see how it translates, but I'm not sure I really want to go there because if I open this can of worms, there's no going back, which is actually true. Once you admit the truth, it's going to be very hard to unsee it. And you are also now more responsible for the choices that you make with the new information. Because when you admit something that's painful and then you don't change, psychologically, it costs you more because you know better. So Mm. it's going to hurt you more if you say, oh gosh, I'm married to someone who's an alcoholic and it's really harmful to me. And now I see that they are, but I'm staying anyway or I'm not going to try to intervene, or I'm not going to set different boundaries. That is a choice and it will hurt you more. So if you're reluctant, what I would ask as a starting place is how are you benefiting by staying the same? And what does it cost you to stay the same? I think that the more people can see the cost of self-deception or the cost of not striving to understand themselves differently and making choices congruent with who you authentically are, the more likely they are to engage in the process. Because regret's one of the worst things that we can experience as humans. Mm -hmm. And when you look back on a situation and you say, "I, I knew better and I didn't do anything about it. And now here's the cost. I don't have a healthy marriage. I've found myself in a series of behaviors that are really not serving me well. I ruined my relationship with my children. I lost my job, whatever it is, or I'm in a job that I hate and I'm doing it because my parents told me that that was what mattered, which is a self-deceptive lie, right? Mm. Once you notice Ask yourself, what is the cost to you if you don't change? And can you live with that? And oftentimes when I'm working with reluctant people or people who are coming to therapy and they want to change the symptom because they're miserable, but the amount of work it's going to take to actually change is so overwhelming that it's like, oh gosh, but I don't know if I want to do that. I focus on the motivational interviewing 
let me understand you and let's really, really try to put a big picture together here so that you can see what it's going to cost you if you stay exactly the same. Because as a therapist, if you're not willing to change, it's more helpful for me to focus on getting you happy with your life exactly as it exists today than to butt heads with you over time, getting you to try to do something that you're not willing to do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And the, the, I'm just thinking about the cost part of it. Like, what does it cost you if to not change and for things to stay the same, but there's more cost than to just me, right? There's the cost to people that I love or kids or my spouse or whatever it might be, depending on the situation. If I stay the same, what are the costs, the domino effect of costs yes. for things to continue to stay the way they are as well? Yes. Yeah. And what are the opportunities? You know, yeah. it's such an amazing opportunity when mm-hmm. you start to unravel a reality. And I get that it's completely scary. I have personally been there. I professionally see it. Therapy is hard. Self-honesty mm-hmm. is hard. It takes deliberate effort. But it is the ultimate way to become free and empowered. Mm-hmm. Because the more you can craft your own life based on who you are, what you value, what you need in this lifetime to live a fulfilled, meaningful experience, the better. And so the only real way to get there is to be as honest with yourself every day that you can and make choices that are consistent with the truth. Hmm. And part of this, Courtney, I'm believing is also that there may be some things that we're scared to admit to ourselves, Mm -hmm. but they also might not be accurate truth. So the, the way we feel about it may be true, but once we say it and actually go through the process of thinking of, is that true? Is that really true? Is it a helpful thought? Is it, um, so an example here may be, you know, I, I am a, Oh goodness. <laughs> Trying to think of an example at the end of the day at 5 p.m. my time. Um, I'm so back- tired. I deserve to have another glass of wine tonight. Mm. I'm not going to deal with this until tomorrow. It's too scary. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Well, or because I think that one might be a little bit more of a protective thought, but maybe if there is someone struggling with a job, for example. So mm-hmm. like I'm I'm in this job because it's what my parents wanted me to do and they mm-hmm. said I would be happy and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Not admitting that because you're scared of what the thought might bring up and you're scared of having to deal with it. Well, what if I do end up quitting my job? How is that going to affect my parents? Are they still going to love me? Are they still going to accept me? And so you don't deal with it because you fear the consequences of actually saying it and then dealing with it. Mm -hmm. But if you were to actually work through it, then you may come to realize it's not the end of the world like you thought it was. Like that thought and the consequences that you attached to dealing with it and being honest with yourself didn't the catastrophizing. That's what it is. We catastrophize what would happen when we do that, when probably the majority of the time, it's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. And as you're saying, 
there are many ways we lie to ourselves. And so catastrophizing mm-hmm. in, is one of them. And mm-hmm. in my book or even online, you you can look up some of the most common cognitive distortions is what we would call them or, or mm-hmm. thinking errors that humans do. Yeah. And so as soon as you notice that you're doing one of them, you have the opportunity to say, wow, well, this isn't true. And once, or maybe part of it's true and part of it isn't, it's not as extreme as I thought. And now you get to choose, well, here are the benefits of continuing in this job. And here's the reality of things that I get and things that I don't like. And gosh, Mm -hmm. okay, my parents kind of set me on this path, but now I get to actively decide what I'm going to do with it. Do I want to stay? What are the costs of that? The pros and cons? Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in academia, I got tenure and within a year I resigned. And that was a very difficult self-deceptive experience because I had to confront all of the reasons that I should stay. (laughs) I thought to myself, who am I if I'm not a professor? What's my professional identity if I am not running research in my lab? What am I going to do next? I spent my entire career to date trying to get here. Am I really going to quit? Really? Mm-hmm. Self-deception everywhere. And then I had to say, what's my motivation for staying? Is it all based on these expectations that I set up for myself? What are the costs if I do stay? Well, the cost was... I was going to continue in a job that I really didn't find that fulfilling anymore. Mm -hmm. And although I love psychology, there were so many other ways that I could engage in that field without writing research papers and grants that only really other academics were ever going to read. And so I give that example because sometimes the self-deception isn't as obvious to us in the moment, but once you see it and once you confront it, now is your freedom because now you make a choice with your eyes wide open. And if I had stayed in academia, I would have been staying with a very clear perspective that I'm choosing this. Even if I don't love these aspects, I love these aspects and this is what I'm going to do. And with that choice, that honest, self-aware choice comes tremendous emotional growth and freedom because you're owning your own life journey. Hmm. I love that. That's a perfect way to think about it and an encouragement for people to to dive deep into, into why. Why are you continuing in the things that you are? Why are you motivated to do so? I loved how you worded it that way. What is my motivation for doing this? And is it something that's serving me well or or something that I at least need to be honest with myself if it's not? Uh, Dr. Courtney Warren, I've loved having you on. Tell us a little bit more about where people can find you, follow you, and get your book. You have two. You have The Letting Go of Your Ex, which we will link to in the show notes. But then the name of your other book is about self-deception. I don't have Yeah, Lies We Tell Ourselves, The Psychology of Self-Deception. Um, you can find it on Amazon or on Barnes and Noble or wherever you buy books. You can also follow me. I write a blog for psychology today. My website is drcourtney.com. I also have an Instagram and new TikTok account where it's only educational and informational, but, um, blogs, 
like the one you saw for CNBC or, or writings that I have coming out that are relevant to self-honesty and relationships, um, your Love relationship it. with yourself and your relationship with other people, which is kind Love of the it. core of our journey as humans. Fantastic. We will link to all of those things, including your book and your Instagram, your TikTok, all the things in the show notes as well so that people can find more about you. I thank you so much for your time today. It was just delightful chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Here are my key takeaways from today's episode about self-honesty and self-deception. First, this is a very difficult topic to talk about for many people, I'm sure. Even me sitting here processing my conversation with Courtney and thinking about what we talked about, I think that there's just some mixed feelings about how to start this process and, you know, going through a process of where in my life could I maybe be more honest with how I feel about certain things. For example, I released an episode, I believe last week at the time that this one comes out, talking about how I'm really unhappy with my current daily schedule. I feel very burnt out. There's a lot going on. And in that episode, I even got a bit emotional as I was processing it and and realized to myself, because it was the first time I was really honest with myself, that I'm not living in line with what I say my beliefs and values are. My schedule is full of things that is keeping me from focusing on spending more time with God, spending more time with my husband, spending more time with my kids. And that's a hard reality for me to admit. And then just as we talked about in this episode, the question comes of what am I going to do about it? Because I could continue to live in that self-deception and say to myself, well, it's for good reasons, or it's just a busy season. But the truth of the matter is, it's been four years of a busy season with my kids being home. That's kind of what I'm using as my barometer. And it's time for me to make a change or nothing's going to change. So I've I've been wrestling through that and asking myself, what does that change look like? And, and what needs to be let go of in my daily schedule? And most importantly, in what I'm holding on so tightly to? What are the things I'm scared to delegate to someone else or to just let go of or stop doing altogether? And why? If I'm if I'm timid about letting those go, is it because I've I've put some of my self-worth or identity into that? And so maybe there's something you're struggling with in your life right now where you need to be a little bit more honest and coming to terms with, well, just stating what you need to be honest about doesn't mean that you are a bad person or that you don't have worth or value or that you're not loved. It just means that it allows you the freedom to deal with the truth and to just look at the truth and understand what your path is going to be going forward from there. My second key takeaway from this and a place where I typically go because of my line of work and what I do with Marriage Helper and things that I've heard in the past of other people's experience is it can be very difficult to go through this process thinking about an unhappiness in a relationship. So for example, the the example was given in the podcast of coming to a reality of someone saying, I'm married to an alcoholic. What am I going to do about it? And I believe in society that there tends to be a, a movement towards, well, if someone is doing a behavior, then I just need to end the relationship because if I'm not happy, then 
then I need to be happy. I need to do something to make me happy, right? And I've heard that from, it's not what we talked about in the episode, but it was the thought that came up that I've heard from so many people who I have talked to or have contacted our team over at Marriage Helper and saying, but I don't want to leave. You know, I, I want, I love my spouse, but yes, they're struggling with this addiction right now, or they're struggling with something right now. What can I do? And here's the hope in that situation. The question that we love to prompt people to ask is, is your spouse a good person doing a bad thing? Or are they a bad person doing a bad thing? Because if they're a good person doing a bad thing, then they deserve to be rescued. Does that mean you have to be the person to rescue them? No, not necessarily. Does that mean you shouldn't instill boundaries or the, as we call it, safeguards that offer protection, the stops and or any of those things? No, it doesn't mean that. But the way that you go about doing that is then done from a place of, I love you. I want this to work. I want this to continue. But for me to feel safe or for us to continue in our relationship, here's some things that are going to need to happen. And remembering that boundaries are set up not to punish the other person, but to protect you or your kids from a destructive behavior. And there's a lot about that. You can go find more at Marriage Helper. We'll link over in the show notes to, to some things you can read over there about that. But I just know that it can be when you're in the middle of a crisis in, in a marriage, and I know many of my listeners are, it can, it can feel like, well, then I need to leave. It's your choice whether you leave or not. And part of this honesty and coming to to terms with, man, I need to be honest with the fact that, yeah, maybe my spouse does drink more than I'm comfortable with. Maybe they are depending on alcohol. You know, at least bringing that to the light gives you, you, not someone else, it gives you the choice of how you're going to proceed. And there are many ways that you can proceed if you so choose before filing for divorce. Wanted to give you some hope in that specific situation. The third key takeaway I have is how important it is to deal with core themes that we have in our life and how that might be affecting how we process things, how we filter things, how, how we experience the things that we, that are going on in our lives. So an example for me that came up as she was talking, thinking about core issues, core themes of our life. And thinking about family of origin and, and, and things in school and things like that. Um, so when I was six years old, my sister, my middle sister, her name is Joanna. She's 12 years older than me. So when I was six years old, she was 18 and she was everything to me. She was my role model who I looked up to. I wanted to spend all my time with her. She was the coolest person that I could have ever thought that I knew when I was six years old. Not that I don't think that today, but when I was six, she was everything to me. And when she was 18, she went off to college. And I didn't realize until two years ago when I was going through EMDR for trauma, which is a type of therapy, that that's actually my earliest memory of feeling abandoned was when my sister left. And it wasn't that she was trying to or anything like that, but at six years old, I couldn't really process why she was leaving. I just knew that she was gone. And it happened around the same time that my grandmother died. And my mom went through a really hard time when my grandmother passed away and was very depressed for several years. 
And so at the time that my sister left, I also, in a way, felt like I lost, quote unquote, my mom in the sense that I remember her really struggling with depression. Again, as an adult, I understand all of these things and I don't hold anything against anyone. No one did anything bad. But the way I interpreted it and internalized it as a kid put some core issues into me. And I wouldn't necessarily was the think I wouldn't necessarily say it was the fear of being abandoned. That's not what my core theme, one of my core themes in my life is. The core theme is for me, um, it's that if I don't look out for myself, no one else will. So it's not a fear of someone leaving me. It's a fear of someone not protecting me, not being attentive to me, not wanting to be with me, which was made worse in my first serious romantic relationship when I was a hundred percent sure that this was the person that I was going to marry. And we dated for several years and he ended up uh, leaving me to be with another, to be with another woman and then having to continue to be around that other woman because we had been acquainted. We had been friends. I wouldn't say she was a close friend, but we had been acquaintances and uh, there were classes that we were still in together. And, and I, it I still had to be confronted with the fact on campus day to day that he had chose her and not me. And once again, I had no one to protect me. I had no one that was looking out for me. I felt like no one wanted me. And that was something that I've that I've I've carried that weight for a long time of the need for self-protection. I need to protect myself because I can't trust someone else to. Which has led to a lot of my anxiety. So my anxiety tends to flare up because I'm trying to do things to quote unquote protect myself. And anyway, this isn't about me. I'm trying to give you an example of how I've processed some of these things. And so I have had to go into some of that work and go back into some of those scenarios and really think about and process through and forgive, even though no one did anything wrong, except the boyfriend, uh, no one did anything wrong, just forgive the circumstances and try and look at a new perspective and understand healthier ways for me to process those things and the behaviors that it's leading me into now. And how can I show up differently in my current relationships so that I don't let anxiety take over and, and just try and work for my protection or work for approval from other people or attention from other people. And so a lot of that looks like me being really grounded in my pies, in my self-worth not coming from from appearance or from competition, some of those things we talked about, but coming from something more stable, which is why it's so important for me to spend that time in the Word, in the Bible every day, spend that time with my family, because those are actually the areas of stable self-esteem and self-worth, God's love and family support and virtue are the top three that led to the most stable self-esteem and self-worth. Whereas appearance, academic competency, competition, all of those things led to the worse effects of, of when we're trying to put our self-worth into that. All of that to say, once again, I'm processing with all of you and realizing that, um, 
I have some work to do and maybe you do too. I hope this episode has been helpful for you. I would love to hear from you. Love for you. If you enjoy the podcast or enjoy the show, please consider leaving a rating on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps the episodes get to even more people until next week. Stay strong.